Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Welcome to CSIS. Uh, My name is Matthew Goodman. I uh, hold the Simon Chair in Political Economy here at CSIS. Uh, Delighted to welcome all of you here on, I know, a hot day and appreciate your coming out. Uh, for those who are uh, decided to stay cool in their office and watch online, uh, welcome to you as well. We always have a good following online. Uh, delighted to have you with us as well. Um, just a quick a couple of administrative announcements before we start. First of all, as always, please silence your phones. Um, and then uh, if there were any kind of emergency, just basically follow me. There are emergency exits here. We would go down the alley and, and rally at the National Geographic one block down. Uh, it's never happened, unlikely to. but. Uh, we uh, always try to uh, make sure everybody's comfortable. Um, and uh, I think that's it for administrative uh, matters. So um, I'm delighted to be joined here by the uh, respective Sherpas of Japan and the United States, and I'll introduce them in one second. But just to preview this by saying, um, as, as you all know, at the end of last month, uh, the leaders of uh, actually 51 countries, I think I counted if you count the EU seat, Um, as representing uh, 28 countries minus the four that have their own seats. Um, I think it's a G51 uh, plus international (laughs) organizations, uh, representing about 85% of the global economy, met in Osaka, Japan uh, for the 14th uh, G20 Leaders Summit, uh, since uh, the group was elevated from finance minister's level to leaders in 2008. Um, And so we're here to debrief on that and to hear what happened and what's going to be taken forward. Um, the G20 doesn't always get a lot of uh, love these days uh, since its heyday in, in uh, really saving the world uh, in the 2008-2009 period. Uh, but I still think it's an important institution. If we didn't have it, we'd have to create it uh, because for really three fundamental reasons. One, uh, it, it solves problems. Uh, in the extreme, it, it solves or addresses crises. And uh, you know, there will be another crisis at some point in the global economy. I'm not gonna predict when, but uh, I, I guarantee you there's going to be another crisis and, um, and we're gonna need the fire engines uh, fueled up and ready to go. Uh, so you need a fire station even when there's no fire today. So that's one reason it needs to be here. Uh, the second is it's when you get leaders of 85% of the global economy together <laughs> and they set an agenda for uh, global economic cooperation, That's really important and powerful, and we're going to talk about some of the issues on the agenda, Um, things that you may not have known were on the global agenda, like marine plastics, for example, uh, which the Japanese put on the agenda. That's a a fairly specific issue, but just to give an example of of the power of this group in in identifying uh, big big problems. Um, And then the third thing it does is it builds habits of cooperation. It brings people like Kellyanne and to meet the sun together, but that's the easy part. It also brings uh, the, 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 uh, the emerging markets, particularly the large emerging markets that, that have more of a role in global economic governance but don't have the experience uh, or perhaps the same mindset. And so building those habits of cooperation is, is useful. So I'm a fan of the G20, or I th- fan, and I just think it's an important institution. Um, so uh, we, we think it's important to talk about it, and I'm delighted that we have uh, two um, real pros and practitioners here uh, to help um, talk about it. I know there were other things that went on in Osaka, um, and I know a lot of the media attention was focused on those things, and we won't avoid those things. In fact, I'll maybe talk a little about the US-China 
um, sideline uh, meetings uh, there. But let's first talk about mm -hmm. the G20 itself. And I'll start with Ambassador, uh, Ambassador Koji Tamita, by the way, is the um, Japan's ambassador to the um, G20. He's a long-serving foreign ministry official and uh, has been in this role for the last year, helping to honcho this, this effort. And Kellyanne Shaw, who is deputy uh, assistant to the president for international economic affairs and also deputy director of the National Economic Council, um, is the U.S. Sherpa uh, for the G20 and G7. Uh, so uh, delighted to have both of them. So Tomita-san, um, what were Japan's big plans and expectations, hopes and expectations for the Osaka summit and mm -hmm. to what extent were those met? What were the, the biggest uh, achievements and challenges from your point of view? Okay. Well, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, I, I thank you, Matt, for organizing this uh, event. Uh, you know, when we are uh, doing a negotiation on the statement, uh, we always joked that, that there shouldn't be any more than 50 people who actually read uh, the statement. But look at this, I mean, more than 100 <laughs> people. So this is my wildest dream coming true. So, um, and I also like to thank Kerry Ann for uh, working very constructively. And uh, I mean, with the, with the help coming from all the Sherpas, not just the United States, but all the Sherpas, we uh, managed to get the job done. Uh, in terms of expectations and outcomes, you know, G G20 deals with a very wide-ranging issues. So, I think you'll be the judge. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, uh, examining the each issue to what extent we succeeded. Um, but in terms of uh, what, uh, to what extent we achieved what we had set out to do in Osaka, I think we are pretty much comfortable with what we uh, achieved in Osaka uh, because uh, we uh, uh, accomplished most of the. Uh, things we uh, had set out to do, perhaps except for one issue of climate change. And uh, I'll, be happy. We'll come back I'll that. be happy to come back. Um, so I think uh, in, a, in a scale of 10, I'll give eight uh, for our efforts. Perhaps I'll, I'm a little bit self-indulgent, but that is uh, uh, my, my grade. And the two more general points, I mean, in terms of what really transpired among the, uh, the leaders' discussions, I was uh, really impressed by the uh, sort of spirit of solidarity among all the leaders. And leaders came to uh, Osaka to get the, this job done because, well, as I said, I'll come back to later on the question of, of the um, climate change. Uh, it was the leaders themselves who, who worked out uh, finally the, uh, the compromise language. So uh, I think they, they, are, they, they, as I said, they came to Osaka uh, for, for demonstrate, I mean, to demonstrate their sort of sense of solidarity. And uh, that was a very good thing to witness. And uh, finally, um, G20's uh, place in uh, sort of multilateral collaboration, you, you uh, mentioned about the habit of dialogue and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, G20 is a very awkward beast if you, if you look at the uh, very diverse membership. And also it's, uh, it's a basically a consensual process. It doesn't have any uh, um, uh, permanent secretariat. It, it rely on the, uh, relies on rotational presidency and so on and so forth. So it's easy to underestimate the, uh, the uh, the impact of the G20. But uh, if you look at um, 
the situation, the state of affairs surrounding the multilateralism, I think it's important the system uh, is to be supported by the, the, the mechanisms of dialogue uh, like G20. And G20 has a two distinctive uh, uh, strengths. The one is a sheer size you mentioned. It, it uh, uh, covers 85% of the world economy. The second strength is, is a, it's a personal engagement of the leaders themselves. As I said, leaders themselves uh, negotiated in the end to come up with a unified voice. Um, if you think about how personalized politics is in all the countries, I think it's important to develop, as, I, as you said, I mean, habit to dialogue among the leaders. So I think uh, G20s um, has become, I mean, more and more important uh, in the uh, 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 multilateral collaboration. So in that sense, uh, we have uh, been very satisfied and uh, um, uh, to have uh, completed uh, what we believe to be a very successful summit. Well, I'm going to ask you about a few of the yeah. specific agenda items in a minute, yeah. but let me ask the same question of Kellyanne. What was the U.S. hoping to get out of this summit, and, and how do you think you did? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for hosting us here. And like Koji, never in my wildest dreams did I imagine this many people would be interested in uh, what we accomplished. Um, the last time I, I saw uh, Koji, we were uh, significantly more sleep deprived than we are now. Uh, so it's good to see him in um, this context as well. It was a tremendous amount of work. Um, the Sherpas meet throughout the year. Um, and then in the, le uh, the days leading up to the leaders' summit, um, and then we're there with our leaders, helping them through uh, the summit itself and the various plenaries, but also at the same time trying to finish up the negotiations on um, the final work that um, you all saw in the form of the communique and the deliverables. So it's a tremendous amount of work, and um, I, you're right, it is more like the G51 or 54 um, than the G20, so the amount of logistics that go into it and that Japan um, and Koji and his team had to organize and facilitate um, was truly extraordinary and we were nothing but impressed with um, the way that Japan uh, put the G20 together. Um, even so impressed that our president tweeted about it multiple times, I think using the words perfect in all caps with an exclamation point afterwards. So um, thank you very much for a successful year. In terms of our expectation going into um, the G20, it's, it's largely an economically focused um, forum where it was created in the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2008 where President Bush invited the leaders of the world to get together in Washington to talk about how do we address these problems um, from a global perspective because they're beyond the purview and the reach of just a single country being able to adequately address them. And the forum has maintained its core focus on economics throughout its last um, 10, 11 years of history. Um, but has slowly added additional topics. Um, you'll see this year, um, just like last year in Buenos Aires, we have up to 10 different ministerials focused on issues from agriculture to tourism, to digital trade, to gender, to all sorts of other topics, which are captured in um, the final communique that the leaders, um, reflects what the leaders actually discussed um, at this time in Osaka. And so there were a wide range of issues we had to tackle this time. Um, I think we were relatively um, happy with a, a few exceptions with um, how each of those issues was resolved and thought that they were a fair presentation of where the various leaders were at. Um, I, I'll, I'll sort of get into a few of them uh, briefly and then happy to chat about uh, whichever ones you want to raise. But specifically on the economy, we were glad to see there was an emphasis on growth and really tackling um, the different types of measures and issues we should be taking together to jumpstart each of our e 
economies. Um, the finance ministers play a critical role in the leader summit, and there was a lot of language in there about um, trying to come to a consensus on uh, the international taxation issues, um, particularly tackling digital taxation. And for us, it's incredibly important that we have commitment at a G20 level to the OECD process that will achieve that consensus by the end of 2020, as opposed to taking unilateral um, digital taxation efforts that really do undermine the, those negotiations. So we were glad to see a commitment to that process. Um, on energy, uh, the United States takes a very much balanced approach. Um, we see it incredibly important to have energy security, um, access to uh, reliable and affordable energy, an energy neutral policy, which is balanced with economic growth as well as environmental protection. And we really do believe that you can have all three at the same time. We have an incredible record on, on each one of those components and each one of those goals. And um, ultimately, the outcome of Osaka was leaders having an honest conversation about each of those issues and how they work in concert and they interplay. Um, on trade, uh, we saw the big news from, um, I guess it was seven months ago, although it feels much longer, um, Buenos Aires was a recognition by the G20 economies that the multilateral trading system was falling short of its objectives and that necessary reform of the WTO uh, was the next step and, and an acknowledgement that reform was necessary. And so um, this year we really built on that. Uh, we recommitted to that process, we acknowledged that it was um, falling short and um, that we were going to uh, continue to pursue reforms. Uh, and also acknowledge the role that um, uh, bilateral and regional agreements can play in the um, broader trading system. Um, there, uh, I, I sort of will welcome the opportunity to talk about um, the uh, Steel Forum and some of the outcomes there and some of the expectations we had about addressing unfair trading practices and some of the more modern challenges in the trading front uh, that we couldn't quite get to in this setting, but I think are really important to continue to drive um, in the G7 and, and, and subsequent G20 um, opportunities. Uh, on environment, uh, you mentioned uh, the marine litter, um, the plastics um, implementation framework. We were really happy to see that outcome there, really focusing on uh, waste management and innovation, which we see as the way to resolve so much of that challenge. Um, and, but we do need a lot of other economies to step up. China alone accounts for 25% of all of the marine litter waste. And so really pivoting to ensure that um, in the G20 context, the Asian countries are involved in that effort, I think is really important and key. So um, we look forward to um, implementing um, what Japan um, was able to put forward there. Uh, on women's economic empowerment, uh, so it was certainly one of Japan's key themes. It's uh, something that is very much aligned with um, President Trump's agenda. Ivanka Trump um, was invited by Prime Minister Abe to come and speak at um, one of the events uh, along with Queen Maxima and Prime Minister Abe himself, um, which we thought was great. Uh, it's not just a social justice issue. It's not just an economic issue. It's a national security issue, really ensuring that women have equal opportunities to participate in their respective economies. And so it's really important that the G20 continues to focus on this issue, and we were glad to see a, a positive outcome there. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention uh, for now is on high-quality infrastructure principles. Uh, it's something that is a, a huge priority for this administration, really looking ahead and seeing the challenges to development around the globe. In order for countries around the world to continue to grow, they have a significant need to develop infrastructure. Um, they need to have access to capital. They need to have um, fair, transparent uh, lending terms. They need to be high-quality principles that we were glad to see were agreed um, in the G20 context that really drive what we see as successful and sustainable infrastructure, which will lead to successful development further down on the road. 
The alternative is that we just saddle countries with unsustainable debt that we'll be paying for for decades to come. And that will be the purpose of the G20, is trying to figure out how to deal with that. So I think it's important that we're um, addressing that issue now. And the United States is spending a significant amount of time, um, not just with the passage of the BUILD Act, uh, but also with additional efforts that we're looking at now to really tackle that problem on a global basis. So all in all, um, I, I very much think that Koji is right. We had a successful summit, um, a lot of great progress on a number of issues, and, and happy to chat about any single one of them. Great, super, great overview. And you touched on a lot of the uh, the things that I did want to dive a little into. And by the way, our panel after this mm. has experts in several of those topics, and so we won't steal their uh, their uh, limelight here, but, uh, but I do want to just touch on a couple things. So first of all, as you mentioned, the G20 was set up really to deal with a growth problem, and it remains the kind of central organizing principle of, of the G20, and it was good to see uh, a, a reaffirmation of the, the mantra of the G20 about strong, sustainable, balanced, and inclusive growth. Uh, which Mark Sobel in the front row came up with. Well, he came up with three of those four adjectives. Inclusive mm -hmm. was added later. Um, and um, uh, so that was good. And it mentioned downside risks, including risks in geopolitics and trade. And on trade, as you mentioned, a good news that, uh, that it was there. There wasn't you know, a, a, a fundamental visible rupture on, on that issue, which it felt like there might have been. Um, for us communique readers, and I guess I should be careful not about admitting that I've read the whole communique, um, but um, I might lose friends. Um, but, uh, but I noticed you know, the trade paragraph was moved up from 27 to 8. And in that paragraph, there were, as you said, some new things added that were useful, like um, a more specific uh, mention of the work on the WTO reform, including dispute settlement mechanism, uh, trying to get some sort of outcome by the next WTO ministerial in Kazakhstan next summer. Um, and the ad addition of the bilateral and regional um, agreements as, as, as being a good thing was, was, was useful. But there wasn't uh, the strong positive language of, uh, against protectionism and uh, some of the more robust language that there had been in there before about trade. Is that, um, you know, was that, was that a major subject of discussion in the room? And I'm going to ask the same thing of you, Koji, but um, was it something that, that uh, the U.S. felt uh, was an important issue for um, getting that uh, language and were you satisfied ultimately with what came out? Uh, well, I, ultimately we endorsed the language that was there, so we certainly were satisfied with, with the outcome. Uh, and a lot of it was pulled from um, the ministerial um, just a few weeks prior where the trade ministers had met to discuss these issues. You know, I, I, there, and this is part of a, a broader point on the G20 in general. You know, part of the uh, challenge with tackling so many different issues now, as opposed to where we were 10 years ago with more of a focus on growth and all of those um, great adjectives associated with that, is that there is this expectation year by year that whatever was discussed before, whatever language was there before, is going to still be there the next year, and we're just going to add to it. And so, you know, whether it's the G20 or the G7 or any other international forum, um, people do ask this question. They, they notice, oh, this language was here this year, but not the year before, or it's, it, there's language that's now missing. Um, and I would say don't read too much into it. I, I think from the United States perspective, it's really important that we're precise with our, our words. Um, we would like to see communiques moving forward that are uh, considerably shorter. 
uh, when you talk about everything, you really aren't talking about anything in particular. And so on the trade language, it was obviously one of the most, um, uh, contentious is the wrong word, it was one of the um, issues with the most focus on it, um, and it's incredibly important right now. I think everyone acknowledges that trade is a significant issue for all of our economies throughout the world, um, and it really was underpinning a lot of what we were talking about. But at the same time, it's really important that the words that we do say have meaning. So for instance, um, with respect to WTO reform and um, acknowledgement that the dispute settlement system in particular needs reform, um, if you read the words very carefully, it also says, you know, in accordance with the rules um, as agreed to by members. And it's really a back to basics approach to the WTO. And um, it's, you know, opining on exactly what is wrong with the dispute settlement system. So we were encouraged by that acknowledgement by all members. Um, so for us, you know, whatever was said the year before, I, I think it has power and has meaning, but it's more relevant to talk about current events and how they stand today. And so those were the types of issues that countries wanted to discuss. Okay, thanks. Koji, same thing about trade, but also why don't we seg into the climate thing, because as you mentioned, that yeah, was one yeah, of the areas of right, biggest risk. And just right. for the sake of the audience, there was a um, ultimately a compromise you mentioned where 19 of the, the members of the G20 agreed mm. to pretty robust language about implementing the right. Paris Accord, and then there was a separate paragraph for the United States, you know, saying that it had a different view and but was going to take a different approach, including pursuing some of the, the energy-related topics mm -hmm. and so forth. So how did that play out? And, you know, you obviously thought it was significant that that, that was one yeah, issue you yeah, couldn't achieve right, right. consensus on. Well, first, on trade, I think uh, from my perspective, the most important thing was to uh, make sure that the leaders share the recognition that uh, the trade tensions are starting to have an impact on real economy and that uh, we have to do something about it. So you, you, as you mentioned, the leaders acknowledged the intensification of trade and geopolitical um, tensions and that they expressed their readiness to, to, uh, to respond, address these risks. And that sounds uh, <laughs> fairly benign, but if you look back and just uh, seven months ago in Buenos Aires, leaders just said they note the current trade issues. So, I mean, if you compare with that, I think we can um, uh, come up with a sense of urgency uh, on their need to address these, these uh, risks. And uh, also, uh, I think there, this recognition to be credible need to be anchored by their commitment to uh, the basic tenets of free and open trading system, you see. So that comes the question of where is the, the, the traditional term like a uh, fight against protectionism or elimination of unfair trade, trading practices and so on and so forth. None of the language you, you don't find the communique. But uh, the, the problem is all these language have acquired certain baggage in the context of the ongoing trade discussions. So we have to come up with a prag pragmatic way to, to express our commitment to the basic tenets of material trading system in a different way. So that's the reason why you, you, you find a bunch of adjectives in the, uh, the, the, the statement uh, starting from the uh, open, free, um, and discriminatory, transparent, and so on and so forth. I think that is a way to, to express our sentiment in a, in a different way. But uh, the intent is there. So I think uh, 
I think I hope you uh, uh, read the paragraph that way. And also, in order to respond to the uh, sort of erosion public confidence in the uh, Marichato train system, uh, it's not enough to repeat the Mantura, you see. It's, uh, it, we have to demonstrate that the system actually works. So that is the reason why the reform of WT, as, as Kerian mentioned, uh, needs to be uh, taken very seriously. And uh, I think we managed to inject a sense of urgency to this task uh, in a communicate, and also um, managed to give a, uh, some degree of strategic direction. I mean, we, we mentioned the dispute settlement, for instance. So uh, all in all, I think trade, uh, as far as trade is concerned, I think we, uh, uh, it's not perfect, but I think it, it, it's, uh, it's something we could uh, um, uh, hope, I mean, the, the best we can do under the circumstances. On climate change, um, you know, in the, in the past few years, we had, uh, uh, I mean, G20 uh, failed to speak in one voice. I mean, we had uh, uh, basically one versus 19 formula on the question of Paris Agreement. Uh, the Prime Minister Abe thought, uh, I mean, this is not right for the G20. I mean, G20 has to speak in one voice on such important issue as climate change. So our ambition, ambition as a presidency, is to to come up with some sort of uh, formula uh, so that the G20 can speak in one voice without, of course, diluting the, uh, the commitment of those members who still adhere to the Paris Agreement to implement it. Um, but, uh, uh, and we wanted to do this by highlighting the common ground uh, in which all the G20 members can work together, like innovation, uh, the more uh, the business involvement, or the more, more emphasis on adaptation and so on and so forth. But in the end, um, we uh, uh, couldn't uh, um, uh, achieve the formula which satisfies everybody. So that's the reason why I said uh, the matter went to the leader's level. And finally, we ended up with the one verse nine formula once again. But uh, if you look at the, the paragraphs and read carefully, you, you see the trace of our efforts. It's a lot of uh, emphasis on innovation, uh, role of business, uh, importance of adaptation. So I think we, um, we, we did get everything we wanted. But uh, I think our, our sort of uh, our intention, our desire for the greater emphasis on, on, on common ground was um, realized to that extent. So uh, not all, always lost um, uh, as far as the climate change is concerned. I mean, Kellyanne, the, the, the compromise they tried to broker on climate just wasn't, um, wasn't uh, good enough for the, the U.S. wanted to have a, a clear separate statement um, there and, and preferred to have this sort of 19 minus one or one plus 19. 
formula, which is, you know, pretty striking. The U.S. is not aligned with, with everybody else. Um, was there not a, a, a way to kind of try to find a middle ground or? or well, I, I actually would agree with everything that Koji said. And, and our position going in and our position for the G20 writ large is that everything needs to be consensus and that a 19 plus one isn't an appropriate way to tackle an issue. So we were very close um, to consensus-based language. I mean, environmental protection, including our climate policy, is an incredibly high priority. You know, it's, it's too bad that some delegations are so focused on rhetoric around a certain word or a certain agreement that they weren't able to recognize the common ground that we do have in terms of so many of the issues that were ultimately highlighted in the communique. But we were close to consensus. Uh, there were a few delegations at the end who decided they wanted a 19 plus one outcome. The United States wanted consensus. Um, so that is the one area um, I flagged in the beginning that you know, we are a bit disappointed by that outcome, not just because it's, it's a missed opportunity to work together on something where we do share a number of the same priorities, particularly on emissions, but also institutionally, what does that say about the G20? I mean, are we going to then, next time we get to a difficult issue, stop working together and just say, we get our paragraph, you get yours? I, I, that doesn't really seem like a reasonable way forward for us. So we would like to see more consensus in these documents. We think ultimately it should be consensus-based documents. And um, we were disappointed with that outcome. But at the end of the day, um, as President Trump said in his press conference when he was asked about this issue, said, you know, we have our approach to climate. Um, other delegations have theirs, and that's okay. We have a lot of the same priorities and we can coexist. Okay, I'm guessing that one of those countries that might have had difficulty with that consensus language was France, which is the host of the G20, which, uh, which is, uh, G7 rather, which is uh, I'm gonna try to get to if we have enough time. But, <laughs> um, but let me just ask about two other areas, one of which um, Kellyanne touched on, but to ask you, Koji, how important these were um, and the significance of the achievements on, on the digital governance or data mm -hmm. governance issues, which Prime Minister Abe had set out as early as Davos, earlier mm -hmm. this year as something he wanted to be really what the Osaka summit was remembered for, the uh, progress on, on those issues. And then the infrastructure issues, which Kellyanne talked about, the quality infrastructure. I mean, that was quite striking. Those are pretty good principles and a little surprising that China signed on to those, <laughs> to be brutally honest. Uh, not that they're not good things aspirationally, probably even for China, but you know, there was some stuff there about life cycle cost um, based purchasing, um, you know, debt sustainability, um, environmental and social safeguards that, you know, I could imagine China was a bit uncomfortable with. So how did you get that done and how significant were those two, those two areas? Well, as far as the, that governance is concerned, I, I, you know, as, as you know, the Prime Minister Abe um, uh, introduced uh, the subject uh, when he spoke in, in Davos earlier in, in January. And, uh, you know, he sees such a potential uh, in uh, the digital economy. Uh, he was trying to um, find a way to, to maximize the, the benefit we can, we can draw, drew, drew, draw from this, this uh, um, uh, the huge development of digital economy. But uh, it certainly requires uh, uh, appropriate frame of governance. Uh, if you, if you uh, uh, read the, the communique, you notice that we have a separate uh, standalone document on the exploitation of internet by the terrorism. And that, that's one very extreme example of, of the abuse of, of the uh, internet. But there are issues, other issues uh, that uh, 
call for uh, in national actions. But uh, data governance is such a huge universe, and uh, uh, it's a very pioneering uh, new frontier. So we have to be very realistic uh, in, in terms of what we are going to achieve in Osaka. So we focus on two things. The first is uh, we wanted uh, to, to encourage leaders to, to, to um, share uh, the, um, the importance of the notion called free flow. Data free flow with trust. Data free flow with trust. Thank you very much trust. for your assistance. Right. And uh, this is a very simple idea that uh, trust underpins the free flow of data. And uh, by the way, we, uh, we are not, I mean, trust, the term trust wasn't meant as something that regulate the free flow, but uh, rather it was meant as a value acquisition which will further enhance and expand the free data flow. And uh, of course, uh, how such trust is um, uh, acquired, I mean, it, it calls for more specialized debates elsewhere, but I think it, important leaders agree on, on this concept will provide a very important foundation for the debates like that. The second level we worked on was to give a political push to um, some of the, um, the specific uh, attempt to create uh, better governance for, for the uh, digital economy. So Kerry-Ann already mentioned the discussion on digital taxation. Uh, we also endorsed the principles uh, for the um, human-centered stewardship of artificial intelligence. That's another. But uh, the most, uh, the, uh, the one area we attach to particular importance is, is the early commencement of the uh, e-commerce negotiation in, in Geneva. And uh, this, is, this is a very um, uh, important uh, attempt to establish uh, better governance in, in, uh, in a digital economy. And uh, in earlier this year, more than 70 countries, 70 members of WTO have uh, joined in the uh, joint statement that uh, uh, expressing the support for this negotiation. Uh, G20 is not a negotiating body, so, and it's not going to prejudice what is going to be negotiated in, in Geneva. But given political impetus at the highest level of the, uh, the government, I think it's, it's a very worthwhile uh, thing to do uh, to advance the, uh, the efforts to, to create a better, more robust governance for digital economy. As far as the um, um, uh, quality infrastructure is concerned, uh, it's, it's a win-win. I mean, it's supposed to be uh, uh, in the interest of everybody involved, all the stakeholders, donors and donees. And uh, so I think we are, we are not, I mean, this is not something that target any particular country. Uh, so, uh, and even uh, the Chinese government are, uh, I mean, starting to talk in a similar vein. For instance, they organized the uh, One Belt, One Road uh, 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 leaders' wow. meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, I don't think we, we um, uh, I mean, discussions on this uh, um, done fairly smooth and uh, um, not contentious manner. And uh, 
of course, the challenge is to, uh, to uh, 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 develop uh, more sort of defined um, uh, uh, ways to implement th these uh, basic principles. And I, I'm looking forward to um, having um, uh, cooperation of all the, all, the, all the G20 members involved, uh, in chi China included, of course. Uh, in this endeavor. Good, and it's important to us too. We've been doing a lot of work yeah. on this infrastructure yeah. story here and would like to help figure out how to do that, mm. help with that implementation. But um, do you want to say anything about the digital or the data issues? Because those were also, I think, important to, yeah. to us. And then I'm going to ask a final question of each of you. Sure. In terms of Japan's priorities, I mean, we, we definitely um, were supportive of the direction that they took their G20 host year in part because of the emphasis on, on digital issues, which really is when you're looking down the road. You know, we see high quality infrastructure as a problem that's coming down the road. Similarly, digital issues and issues related to the digital economy are coming down the road, so it's important that we tackle them now. Um, we um, were fully supportive of um, uh, Japan's data free flow with trust. Um, I, again, it's, it's incredibly important important that um, as we're looking towards the future, not just WTO e-commerce negotiations, which we're also supportive of, but you know, what, um, what are our economies going to look like? And, and the free flow of data is really the bedrock for that. And so I think it was a great opportunity for us to discuss those issues, to bring everyone in the G20 really on side and really um, elevating the profile of these issues um, and, and talking uh, creatively at the leader level and in the plenary sessions among the leaders themselves about the challenges we're facing with emerging technologies, even related to digital taxation, you know, how do we um, really approach um, this problem uh, from a holistic perspective? And so um, we very much appreciated the, um, the highlight and the, the spotlight that Japan gave to those issues this year. So I, I want to ask a final, final question about sort of the going forward, what happens next, um, and then I'm going to ask the, the mm -hmm. audience if they want to ask a few questions. We don't have a lot of time, but um, let me just ask sort of, so the, 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 the question now is, is, you mentioned, you know, how are we going to implement the, the quality infrastructure principles? You know, what happens now to a lot of these commitments in these different areas? Um, just to, for the record, um, you know, there's still four more uh, ministerial meetings in Japan's <laughs> G20 host year because the host turns over on December 1st and Saudi Arabia will be taking over uh, the host uh, role on December 1st. But until then, you have a bunch of ministerials. Yeah. There's a G7 meeting in Biarritz, France at the end of um, August. There are other presumably global forums and things. How are these issues going to be carried forward and, um, you know, what's, what sort of should we be looking out for? Well, um First of all, uh, as I said, uh, G G20 doesn't have any uh, permanent uh, secretariat. But at the same time, we have a tradition of Troika uh, uh, team working together to ensure coherence the and past consistence. Past and future hosts past as well as the present uh, the and future hosts. So uh, the, for this year, Argent Argentina and ourselves and uh, Saudi Arabia are, are the Troika members. And we are in close touch to, to make sure that uh, um, the discussions we had in Osaka will be uh, uh, built on uh, uh, when the uh, Saudi Arabia uh, 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 take over uh, the later this year. And at the same time, uh, we uh, as, as uh, uh, the government of Japan would like to uh, follow up uh, the, some of the, the conclusions we achieved in Osaka. Uh, as far as the digital economy is concerned, uh, you, you are aware that uh, we, we launched a process called uh, Osaka Track, uh, which is uh, dedicated uh, to the uh, 
uh, advancement in the, uh, in the efforts for uh, uh, rule making in the uh, digital economy. Uh, focus will be uh, on the uh, e-commerce negotiation in Geneva. Of course, we are, as I said, we are not going to uh, prejudice the uh, negotiation in Geneva, but uh, uh, there are things we can do to, uh, to promote, uh, foster an environment for the uh, early commencement and uh, eventual agreement on this agreement. For instance, engaging a business community, for instance, or, or uh, doing a capacity building uh, efforts for the developing countries and so on and so forth. So there are things, uh, I think we, uh, as Japan, uh, uh, the government of Japan uh, uh, are trying to do uh, so as to uh, 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 bring uh, the legacy of Osaka uh, summit uh, to, to uh, uh, more sort of fruitful uh, outcomes in the future. Great, and sort of really the same question for you, Kellyanne, but let me just frame it this way. I mean, the president has not ostensibly been very enthusiastic about these multilateral gatherings, but he has shown up at, um, I think, all of the, the G uh, meetings so far. Um, the next one is in, uh, in France in late August. And, you know, last year they, the G20, G7 was not able to issue a communique. Um, uh, and one other possible sort of thing that w is reason for sort of question is you mentioned digital tax as something that you obviously wanted to make clear that the U.S. position is that is that the OECD work on this is, should, be, should be driving the debate. But meanwhile, the host country of the G7, France, is moving ahead with its own um, uh, tax um, on um, digital companies. And um, so uh, should we expect something you know, constructive coming out of the G7 in France, or is this going to be a difficult meeting? Sure. Well, um, I, I should also note that we will be hosting the G7 next year following right. France. So I, I don't think it's quite fair to say that we're not enthusiastic about the forums. We we actually think they're incredibly useful. You know, part of um, one of the advantages of the G20 and the G7 as opposed to other uh, international organizations and institutions is that because you don't have a standing secretariat, they're actually quite nimble in their ability to attack current events and really um, come up with uh, multilateral solutions to um, what's happening in real time. So we do see them as useful. We just think, um, my comments at the beginning, where they've expanded um, so far and there's this expectation that they're going to continue to grow and address more and more problems, they're not really designed for that. The G7 and the G20 should be more focused in what they're seeking to address and the challenges they're seeking to um, present solutions to, as opposed to it being a solution in search of a problem. We want to flip that on its head. Um, so we're, we're spending a lot of time thinking about how these uh, multilateral forums actually work and what they should be good for um, and, and how we can use our host year in particular to um, take on some of these important issues. And there will certainly be some continuity because the challenges we're facing today will be the challenges we're facing next year, but um, we're really taking a hard look right now internally at what that's going to look like. Um, as for France, um, certainly you highlighted one of the hot button issues. The, um, the finance ministers are meeting this week. Um, Secretary Mnuchin is there with, with his counterparts, um, and this almost certainly will be um, the topic of a lot of discussion and whether or not we are in fact committed to the multilateral approach um, to the international taxa or international consensus on taxation through the OECD, 
or if countries are just going to go it alone and undermine those negotiations. And so we obviously have made our views clear. We launched an investigation. Um, and France is going to do what it's going to do. But we are hopeful that countries will see the benefit of the OECD process and want to work with us on that. And as for the Leader Summit, we'll see. I and mean, we've had a lot of great discussions throughout the Sherpa meetings with France um, and, and the other G7 um, economies. And um, there are a number of issues where we have a lot in common. And again, for us, these are consensus-based forums. And we should really be focusing on our shared values, our shared goals. In the G7, it's the world's um, largest Western democracies. Um, and, and Japan and Canada and the US and um, uh, the Europeans, uh, we should be able to get on the same page on a number of issues, and I hope that we um, ultimately do get there. Um, but we'll see. Okay, um, I got a lot more questions, but I want to harvest a few from the audience, and then we will, um, and then we will have to wrap up. So I'm going to do this in, in combination. The, the woman right there uh, with glasses, there's a microphone here. If you could bring it down, Pearl, here in the, yep. and. Um, and, and then this gentleman in the front row, and then way in the back uh, is the last question. We're going to do them all together. So go ahead. Please identify yourself. Sure. Thank you for being here. Um, Isabel Hoagland with Inside U.S. Trade. Um, Ms. Shaw, you mentioned you were happy with uh, the summit with a few exceptions. Were any of those exceptions trade-related? Um, and can you elaborate on how the conversations on protectionism and unilateral action progressed? Okay. Uh, sir, in the front row here. Okay. There we go. Uh, Chris McRae, EconomistJapan.com. Uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about Society 5.0 and if that also connects with Society the, 5.0. Okay. The Osaka track because uh, PM Abe sort of uh, uh, introduced those, but I don't know how to find out more about them. Okay. Yes. Okay. What is Society 5.0? And then <laughs> uh, a final in the back there. Thank you. Kevin Mayer from NMB Consulting, formerly the State Department. Um, a very general question for Tomito-san, particularly. The sense, what was the sense within the G20 discussions on the question of whether the current U.S. administration is actually committed to free trade rules, tr as we traditionally think of them, and also to dealing with climate change? And depending on the answer, how do you see Japan's role going forward? Okay. Do you want to take on the trade question. Sure, happy to. So, you know, overall, we were um, very satisfied with the outcomes of Osaka. Um, the couple of issues where I, I think we could have done better, obviously climate being one, on the trade front in particular, um, we did not renew the mandate of the Global Forum on Steel Excess Capacity. Um, there was one delegation who was not prepared to do that. I, I think it was a shame and a missed opportunity. Um, the other issues uh, I would highlight in the trade space were you know, really calling out unfair trade practices. And as Koji said, some of these words are quite loaded in terms of their meaning. Um, so we, we simply weren't able to get there. But I think it's important to acknowledge um, you know, force IP uh, or force tech transfer, IP theft, some of the more um, relevant challenges that we're facing right now in real time would have been appropriate for us to opine on as a G20. Um, and then other areas where I think we could have gone further, um, in anti-corruption, for example. You know, there are a lot of countries in the world that have anti-corruption laws on their books, but they're not enforcing them. And so really having an honest conversation about what we're going to do to level the playing field for all of our companies around the world. And then finally, on growth, I think we had a good and robust conversation on it. 
but we also need to have an honest conversation about tax cuts, deregulation, you know, pro-investment policies, pro-job policies. You know, the United States is growing at 3% GDP, while other massive economies are very flat. And so really wanting to have an honest conversation as to why that's happening. Um, I, I think we can have more of that in years to come, but those are the types of issues we'd focus on. Okay, Koji on Society 5.0, first explain to the audience what that is and why you wear the SDG. You're not wearing it now, but a lot of <laughs> Japanese friends wear that, uh, the, the, the SDG circle with five, Society 5.0 in the middle. Yeah. Uh, what is that? Well, um, Society 5.0 is, uh, um, is describes the future society where sort of um, digital world and the virtual world are sort of integrated, you see. And uh, uh, I think there are other terms to describe that situation. I mean, some countries prefer to use the word uh, fourth industrial revolution, but the society 5.0 is the term we, we use um, uh, in Japan. And I think you can find some materials explaining that uh, if you go through the uh, um, the homepage of uh, Red Army Japanese Ministries. Uh, but uh, uh, apart from that, I think um, we put a lot of emphasis on the question with the SDGs uh, uh, this time because uh, this sustainable development, sustainable goals, right? development goal, because partly because we have a first high level summit meeting in, in, in on this subject uh, in September. So Prime Minister wanted to have a synergy um, between what we do in Osaka and what uh, this summit is going to do uh, yeah. in New York. And uh, there are a number of initiatives uh, uh, aiming uh, to, to achieve that. But one initiative is to, uh, to take advantage of the advancement of science and technology uh, for the, uh, uh, the fulfillment of SDGs. And uh, one, I think, a specific initiative is uh, what we call STI for SDGs roadmaps, uh, which is, um, uh, you know, uh, G20 has been putting a lot of emphasis on, on the uh, uh, digital economy. So its members have accumulated very fertile uh, policy experiences. And uh, the idea is to try to share these experience with the developing countries so that uh, they could get the maximum benefit uh, from that. Uh, um, so, uh, if you if you read the, the uh, document, uh, you see a lot of uh, reference to SDGs, and uh, uh, we hope that we uh, have created uh, um, useful input uh, to to the, uh, the the future efforts on this uh, question. Okay, great. Unless you have anything to add on trade and climate, I mean, I think you covered much of the ground. The question yeah. was, uh, do you want to add anything on that question? Yeah. I'd <laughs> Japan's role in taking these issues forward in light of the um, US position? I think, <laughs> if I may answer in a very um, general way, you know, when we do all these, I mean, do the Sherpa discussions, uh, um, one, one mantra I, I always try to, to impress on, on my colleagues is, uh, I mean, if you want to make progress in, in G20, you have to strike a right balance. I mean, judicious balance between ambition and pragmatism. Uh, because, uh, as I said, a G20 is, a, is not uh, is a, is a awkward beast. And uh, trying to get um, 
uh, consensus on any issue uh, can take a lot of efforts. So you have to have, you have to adjust your ambition so that we could uh, get a result. So, uh, so I mean, similar thinking goes to the question of trade. So that the reason why we said that uh, if we can't use specific language, we have to come up with a uh, different way to approach. So uh, that's something uh, uh, I always preached, and uh, I think we pretty well managed to, to do that uh, in the pre preparation. Well, I think, you know, as you say, it's, it's a really big challenge to get 20 or 51 or 54, whatever the number is, uh, countries to agree on what time to have lunch. So, so you, did, you did an admirable job. Um, speaking of time, we're out of time. We covered a lot of ground, but there, there's a lot more to talk about, a lot more to look at. We're going to do some of that in the panel that follows. In the Simon Chair and CSAS more broadly, we're going to continue to look um, at these issues and try to be helpful to both governments and others in, in fleshing out some of these ideas. So stay tuned. Uh, keep watching um, us. But let me uh, ask you to join me in thanking the two Sherpas for their contributions today. Thank, thank you so much. Thanks, David. Thanks so much, Kelly. I really appreciate it. All right. Uh, we're just going to add some chairs, and then the panel's going to come straight up. So stay where you are. We'll be right back. I hope the mic is live now. <laughs> We've got, as, as you all just witnessed from, uh, from the, the discussion here earlier, there was a lot of ground to cover. I was laughing at the fact that there is a certain skill to distilling a 12-page communique down to uh, a 45-minute armchair discussion. I think we even have a greater challenge because we have a lot of expertise up here on stage. So we're going to try and, and get the best of that expertise that we have up here in interpreting what came out of Osaka and out of the communique. Um, there's a rule in, uh, in media training here that regardless of the questions that are asked to you, you just answer the question the way you want to answer. So I'm going to encourage the panelists to go ahead and, and really just say what it is you want to say about the topics that were covered in Osaka and your interpretation of the takeaways. So I'm gonna do brief introductions. I think for those folks that are here in person, you have the benefit of their full bios. 
you'll understand why it is we've invited these folks to, uh, to interpret uh, Osaka outcomes. But let me start first with my left is Mark Sobel. He is the U.S. Chairman of OMFIF, which is an independent forum for central banking, economic policy, and public investment. Uh, Mark is also a senior advisor to CSIS in the political economy program. And he was previously Deputy Assistant Secretary at Treasury for International Monetary and Financial Policy. And in that capacity, he led Treasury's efforts to prepare senior officials for both G7 and G20 engagements. Uh, next to Mark is Scott Morris. He's Senior Fellow and Director of the U.S. Development Policy Initiative at the Center for Global Development. Scott also served at Treasury as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Development Finance and Debt. And in that capacity, he was the representative of the U.S. government to the G20 Development Working Group. Next to Scott is Jennifer Hillman. She is Senior Fellow for Trade and International Political Economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Jennifer's impressive credentials in the area of trade include serving as one of the seven members of the WTO's appellate body. She was commissioner at the United States International Trade Commission, and she was also general counsel at USTR. And then last but not least, we're thankful to have Naomi Wilson here. Naomi is senior director of policy for Asia at the Information Technology Industry Council. Naomi previously was at the US Department of Homeland Security, where she played a leading role on cybersecurity, law enforcement and customs cooperation, covering cybersecurity before it was cool. So we have the benefit of Naomi's perspective here. So um, that's about all the talking that I'm gonna do on the panel until we get to the time to take questions from you all. Um, I commit to you to leave um, a good chunk of time at the end here to ask questions of our panelists. Um, but I'm gonna go just basically in two rounds. Um, if you could, I guess, interpret what coming out of Osaka and kind of that backward looking interpretation in the first round. And then in the second round, I want you to take a more kind of forward looking um, perspective and on your issue, kind of what we can expect going into the next G20 year. And you can even stray from kind of a G20 focus just to more broadly thinking about your issue or your area of expertise, what we can expect in the year ahead. Um, but I'm gonna start first with Mark. As is custom, the communique started off with commentary on the global economy and global growth outlook. Um, you got a credit for language that has now been in the communiques the last number of years, strong and sustainable and balanced growth. Um, but maybe you can just tell us what you took away from the communique on the global growth side, also on um, the global finance section. Okay. Well, first of all, I didn't come up with strong, sustainable, and balanced growth. I think Lael Brainer did. Okay. And she came up with uh, strong, balanced, and sustainable growth. And then there was a big debate, and I let the B move to the end. And uh, some people didn't think this was my finest moment. So but this is why, uh, why folks go through sleepless nights exactly. in negotiating communique language. This is what's being negotiated. OK. OK. So. Uh, to be uh, fairly frank, uh, I read the global economic section. Um, two words came to mind. Uh, I hope I'm not being provocative today, but they were disconnect and insincerity. Um, right. So why disconnect? So according to the G20 communique, global growth appears to be stabilizing and is generally projected to pick up moderately later this year and into 2020. And the sentence struck me as a bit overly sanguine. 
And so to be sure the IMF is predicting right now, uh, we'll see what their, update, up their, what their updated forecast next week say, but right now they're projecting 3.3 global growth this year, 3.6. But forecasts are pointing to a slowing U.S. economy. The G20 text acknowledges downside risks. Uh, Europe and Japan remain in the doldrums. China's slowing. And trade wars are harming confidence and in investment. And in the meantime, you see the rhetoric coming out of the Fed, which is basically putting forth as a rationale for likely interest rates cuts, um, open comments, very, very visible comments about the health of the global economy, which if you followed the history of the Fed is kind of unusual that they're so focused on the global economy. So I feel that there are mismessages between the data and many forecasters and G20 leaders. Um, on insincerity, um, so the G20 says we'll use all policy tools to achieve strong, sustainable balanced growth and safeguard against downside risks. Fiscal policy should be flexible and growth friendly while rebuilding buffers were needed, ensuring debt as a share of GDP is on a sustainable path. But we know Germany intends to continue to run fiscal surpluses and is highly resistant to using fiscal space. And we know the U.S. is not going to pursue gradual fiscal consolidation. And if anything, the deficit is uh, soaring, and there may be pressure to raise spending further to, to conclude a budget deal. I thought the communique had a good monetary policy discussion, emphasizing that policy should remain consistent with central bank mandates. But monetary policy is generally not in leaders' remits. And we know there are leaders who are not much interested in central bank mandates. Um, the global imbalances paragraph uh, was solid and descriptive. I thought it did a good job, and it rightly focused on the current account uh, as the proper measure to look at and the importance of including services and uh, income balances in so doing. But in the U.S., the administration focuses almost exclusively on the trade balance. It doesn't pay much attention to services and income balances. And it also focuses very heavily on bilateral balances which uh, all economists pretty much dismiss as being particularly relevant. So on balance, I thought the global economic section papers over many key issues in thinking. Now, to be fair, this is not the first time the G20 has done so. I participated in several negotiation sessions where I did so. But I think the gap is uh, rather visible uh, this time. Um, OK, so now you need a new descriptor. Head scratching. And that's the word I would apply, the term I'd apply to the IMF discussion. So the G20 remains committed, it said, to concluding the quota review by the fall 2019 meetings, and it mentioned a central IMF role in the global financial safety net, plus the fund remaining strong, adequately resourced, and quota based. So, of course, the Trump administration has nixed a quota increase. Now, perhaps the language. We, we can square this circle if the administration, as rumored, uh, agrees by the autumn to double the size of the fund's backstop emergency line, the new arrangements to borrow, the NAB. And that would help let the fund maintain its overall resource levels. And that would be positive. But I think the U.S. should support a modest quota increase. Quota increases do not often happen. And the added resources need to last for many years. And shocks can always happen. Plus, voting power in the fund derives from quotas, not the NAB, not the NAB. 
So China's, in now, China's now in third place in the fund. Uh, it's got a 6% voting share, more or less. Uh, it's about 16% or higher of the global economy, depending on how you measure it. Yes, there's tension between the US and China. My view is that the US should deal with the world as it is, plus keeping China's position down in the fund just gives China more reason to drift away from multilateralism and pursue its own vision, such as through the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, you told me to comment on the finance section, so I hopefully won't step on your toes. Right? But I liked paragraph 15, which notes the good way, work underway on enhancing debt transparency and sustainability, and it touts the Paris Club's role in engagement of non-traditional creditors. And it promotes the Institute for International Finance's voluntary debt transparency pr principles. So I, I think there are important threats to debt sustainability in many countries, particularly low-income countries. Uh, Non-traditional creditors, especially China, have become the main official creditor through the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. And this is a topic that merits serious attention. And I know that uh, this institution and yours has done a phenomenal job on that front. And the fund and the bank have been working behind the scenes on it. I think that's very positive. And I, I thought it was quite positive that China signed off on the language. And I hope China joins the Paris Club or whatever it may be called. My last observation is on the financial regulatory agenda. I think this has been an important success. Uh, with the G20 leaders and finance ministers using G20 communiques to give high-level agenda-setting instructions and timelines to the Financial Stability Board, uh, which in turn loosely oversees the standards-setting bodies without undermining their independence, uh, the G20 has pushed forward a sound agenda on large banks, and it's helped uh, contribute to a diminishment of systemic risks. So I welcome the FSB's focus on OTC derivatives and fintech, as outlined in Randy Quarles' uh, letter to the G20. He's the chair of the FSB. I think the FSB agenda for banks, however, has been far more successful than that for non-banks. And I worry that not enough attention is being paid to non-banks. Thank you. OK. I was covering a lot of ground in a short amount of time. So that, that was great. And you've given us a lot of, uh, I want to say, ammunition, food for thought as we go into the forward-looking part. You've also kind of set up nicely the portion that I asked Scott to talk to, which is on the development piece, but also on the quality infrastructure um, piece. So um, Scott, your views on those portions of the communique. Great. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, I worried that I was going to have to work hard to um, express as much skepticism as Mark Sobel did <laughs> in my area, but then he lavished all this praise on the debt sustainability language, and I have a more skeptical take on that. So I will come to that. Let me um, offer some very broad, very brief and broad comments on the what we would think of as the development agenda. Uh, either explicitly development agenda or implicitly. Um, then a few comments on the infrastructure principles that, it, that attach to this uh, summit outcome. And then this language on debt sustainability, uh, which is I, you know, my comments between the infrastructure agenda and debt are, are closely related. Um, so I did participate um, in the early discussions about a so-called development agenda in the G20. Um, I will uh, lay my cards on the table and say that I frankly came away from that experience and haven't been convinced otherwise since that this is a very uh, 
challenging agenda, the outcomes are underwhelming. Um, as I sort of step away from it and then come back and read an outcome like this one, um, I come away with an impression that it is fairly meandering. It, it has accumulated a lot of issues. Um, and I say this with respect for the real work that's going on behind every one of these issues. I know that there are a lot of individuals and a lot of institutions behind every issue mentioned in here. Nonetheless, as I think about what the value of the G20 is, what it can bring to an agenda like this, it feels like a lot of language that is just sort of echoing what is already happening in institutions without really pushing issues forward. Um, I would say there are a couple of things in all, the, and I should acknowledge, by the way, there's a lot of text devoted, devoted to um, the development agenda and then more implicitly things that affect developing countries in particular. Um, so within that text, I mean, just a couple of things that do jump out uh, to me as useful, um, one of which is, is a tradition of these statements, which is to acknowledge the fundraising activities that development institutions are undertaking in the year of the summit. So in this case, we have a reference to the World Bank's IDA replenishment, the African Development Fund, the Global Fund uh, replenishments. Um, I think it's important that these are here. Uh, it gets increasingly hard for these institutions to raise money. Donors continue to say that their budgets are stressed. Um, so at the very least, it's useful to have that language and a focus because this group of countries in particular, and the mix of countries, so you have the traditional donors reflected in the G7, emerging donors uh, in, many, in many of the other G20 countries. It's really critical that they have a lot of buy-in so that all of the talk about a development agenda in their statements actually has money behind it reflected in institutions, primarily multilateral development banks. Um, and that they have the resources they need to carry forward that agenda. Um, and then one other area that, that did strike me, um, so Matt mentioned the crisis role, and crisis can take different forms. It's not always sort of big global macro. Uh, you have, um, in, you know, in the time that I was involved, you had a food crisis. And I was frankly impressed with the way the G20 uh, marshaled its language uh, to actually affect activity and in institutions in response to that, so that you saw there was an observable change in institutional budgets around agriculture investments. Um, I think that was generally a successful outcome. Um, that's not the pan, the language I see here, but the one, you know, the, the thing that jumped out at me was uh, referencing uh, Ebola. Um, I think the language is perfectly adequate uh, but I do wonder um, if we will look back on this a few years from now and say that the G20 played a meaningful role in really marshalling the international community's efforts uh, to address this crisis as it unfolds before us. Um, okay, very, um, let me move on to the infrastructure principles and the sustainability. Um, so I guess my take on the infrastructure principles, I, I think this, these, these are very good, um, I would say, um, the message is broadly one that seems to have been written by the multilateral development banks, which is do it like we do um, for everybody else. And I think that's fine as a, as a general standard, whether it's on procurement rules, environmental and social safeguards. Um, you know, the, the underlying principles broadly reflect what we actually see in the practice of these institutions. Um, I will say, I think the principles themselves uh, reflect what I see as a striking shift in the G20's own agenda on infrastructure in which 
in the early years, this really was frankly a lot of cheerleading for doing infrastructure and sort of a lot of, um, to some degree, spinning wheels, but at least trying to figure out how to do things like leverage more private capital into infrastructure. Um, so laying out the case for these investments. The shift we see now is, um, is to view infrastructure much more, to a much greater degree as a set of risks to be managed. That um, with even so-called success, successful efforts to raise money can come bad outcomes uh, with these investments. And I think a fair amount of the principles that we see reflect worries about that. Now, I think it's very clear that this is driven by a reaction to China. Um, but I think it's equally important to recognize that those same risks have always been there, uh, whether it's um, exacerbated by China's approach. But frankly, I was more concerned in the early days of the infrastructure agenda that it was too much cheerleading, not enough sort of clear-eyed view of the risks. So I think in that sense, these principles are useful. Um, and where they, you know, particularly in areas like procurement, where the language is quite strong and, and it's striking if you uh, consider the principles in contrast to what we know to be the rules and practices of um, bilaterals. Primary, you know, China has gotten a lot of attention by virtue of its scale of finance. But frankly, when we think about something like procurement, this is a fundamental problem when it comes to export credit agencies. Um, and I don't think there is a clearly defined agenda, that certainly that the G20 is leading on, to reconcile the basic approach of export promotion. Uh, in support of infrastructure projects, particularly in the developing world, with the more sound development principles around open and competitive procurement. That's not the way export credit agencies operate. Um, which poses, I think, the more direct challenge that the G20 ought to be tackling. So moving beyond the cheerleading, talking about what particularly private finance can do is, uh, what is it within the capacity of these governments to take on themselves? So I do think there's a much bigger challenge that gets into the debt sustainability issue around tackling sort of new regimes, new standards uh, for approaching uh, how official finance behaves in the world, um, how the G20 countries, the full range of which are much more active as sources of finance in the world today um, than they were historically. It used to be more of a G7 phenomenon. Obviously, China has eclipsed everyone uh, by different measures. Uh, it really puts a huge imperative on finding a way, and I, it strikes me that the G20 uh, has to be at least a participating forum, if not a leading one, on figuring out what the new rules of the road are, what the right venues are for coming together on these issues, whether it is export credit standards, recognizing that China is not a member of the existing uh, protocols under the OECD, um, but frankly, even areas where there are no standards, frankly, so if we consider the role that national development banks who are doing cross-border financing play and how they behave, what's guiding that beyond uh, at, you know, what's happening at the national level, there is sort of no uh, international rules of the road. Um, lastly, I guess I would say on the infrastructure, it is striking, I mean, we heard about the challenges of talking about climate change. Um, it is disappointing that um, while there are references to environment and sort of infrastructure that responds to the outcomes of climate change, I don't see any clear principles that guides us toward green finance for infrastructure. That effectively, how do we make choices with our infrastructure investments that are um, uh, contributing to climate mitigation? And I think that's such a clear and compelling agenda. It is one 
that is already baked into the behavior of institutions like the World Bank. Uh, it's the silence of the G20 on this in laying out infrastructure principles is uh, fairly damning. Um, on debt sustainability, um, I would say, you know, the word voluntary appears at key junctures in that paragraph. Um, so I think it's important to recognize these are small steps forward. Even I would acknowledge they are steps forward. Um, as I said, you know, on ECAs, on other sources of official finance, I think there's a really big agenda and a big deal to be had on some agreement on uh, guiding, creating rules of the road for uh, government finance uh, to other governments in the world. And we don't have that right now. We're losing it in areas we have had it because of the emergence of new actors like China. Um, the Paris Club is invoked uh, in the paragraph. It's, it's a leading example of the challenge. China currently is a larger creditor than all of the other Paris Club members combined. Uh, it is not joining the Paris Club anytime soon. Um, there needs to be some reconciliation, and I suspect we're in a world of ad hoc reconciliation through cases like Venezuela where you'll have an out outcome uh, where China will have to play a leading role, but it won't be in a, in a multilateral way that gives folks like us comfort. Um, and then finally, um, China has in fact released its own debt sustainability framework uh, for the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, I think that's happening in the context of all this G20 discussion. Um, even there, where the framework itself looks nearly identical to the World Bank IMF framework, I have a fair degree of skepticism uh, about how that will be used. Why, if you want to, if you've produced an identical framework, why not just link yourself to the existing framework, and namely coordination? With the multilateral institutions and other creditors, I think it's telling that that's not the path that China took. I worry that, frankly, it could be a step backward in the sense that it is now uh, a world of competing debt sustainability frameworks, and that's not necessarily going to lead to good outcomes. Maybe I should stop there. Yeah, it's all in the assumptions, right? It's, yes. Uh, yes. So, well, that's that's a very tricky and complicated issue that you described. And so I guess it's a good thing that we can move on now to trade an easy issue. <laughs> that's a very easy issue. Jennifer is going to be able to, uh, to talk through. But I mean, we heard from the two Sherpas and from the questions from the audience that trade is really was quite, uh, quite a topic in Osaka and continues to be one. And there was language in the communique on a reaffirmation, I guess, of a commitment to WTO reform and dispute settlement in particular, but there wasn't a whole lot of meat behind that language. So maybe you can help yeah, us interpret. I, I, thank you very much. And I, I guess I did want to start also with a little bit of context, because I thought it was interesting that in, um, in an op-ed that Prime Minister Abe published in the, in the Japan Times in the lead up uh, to, the, to the G20, he, he stated, and I'll quote it, the first agenda item concerns what I believe is the most important challenge of our times, working to maintain and ultimately strengthen the international order for free and fair trade. So then I question, okay, so how well did the G20 do if that was um, the first agenda item? And, and again, maybe here I'm going to double down on Mark's word, insincerity. Uh, because what emerged on paper from the G20 I think is pretty good. Um, the problem for me is the juxtaposition between what was said um, and the reality on the ground. Um, and it's interesting that it's easier for me than my colleagues here because the word trade 
appears in the communique in only two paragraphs. Um, in paragraph four, the, the G20 leaders are clearly setting the context where they say growth remains low and risks remain tilted to the downside. Most importantly, trade and geopolitical tensions have intensified. So on the one hand, at the outset, they recognize all of the trade tensions that are occurring. And then the other place in which trade occurs is the one paragraph about trade. Um, and that is paragraph eight. And I'm gonna comment on four things in that paragraph just really quickly to try to unpack it. The first thing that it says there is a commitment, if we can call it a commitment, to strive to realize, those are the words used, strive to realize um, free, fair, non-discriminatory, transparent, predictable, and stable trade and investment <laughs> environment. Now, for those of us that live in the trade world, with the exception of the word free, fair, non-discriminatory, transparent, predictable, and stable trade is already the requirement, bare minimum, of the WTO and has been since 1995. So what is this strive to realize? I mean, presumably all of the G20 members should already be in full compliance with their WTO obligations. And here becomes the juxtaposition. Um, the United States has imposed unilateral and illegal tariffs on $250 billion worth of imports coming in from China. The United States has equally imposed illegal and unilateral tariffs on steel and aluminum imports from virtually all of the rest of the world. The rest of the world has responded, nine countries by, or seven countries, by imposing their own tariffs in response to the United States tariffs. So we have already, sort of the reality on the ground is just a pretty far way away from the notion of free, fair, stable, predictable, and transparent trade. Uh, when you think about it, many of these tariffs that the United States imposed were imposed with less than 48 hours notice. Goods were already on the water, already being shipped to the United States. How is that predictable or stable for any trader to deal with? So again, for me, from statement one, we have this, again, huge discrepancy between what the G20 statement said and where we are in terms of reality. Second thing that it said in paragraph eight is a pledge to keep open markets. And again, here you look beyond the tariffs at what's going on in terms of whether countries are really keeping open their markets, whether it's the sort of Huawei, ZTE, whether it's Russia banning transit via Ukraine, from Ukraine, whether it is a, a, a budding skirmish between Japan and Korea over a series of trade issues. What you are not seeing is a serious commitment to keeping open markets. What you're seeing is many countries, often in the name of national security, starting to actually close down markets. Third thing that it said in this paragraph eight is a reaffirmation of the support for reform of the WTO. Here is where I will say the good news is, I hope that there really is some actual work behind that commitment. And there is a lot going on in Geneva and other places with an effort to reform the WTO. And here I will give uh, credit to the Trump administration for what they've done to say that the reform is critical, is essential, and needs to happen. And it needs to happen across a number of the pillars of the WTO. And I think that there is a tremendous amount of work being done on how do we make the WTO a more active and vibrant actual forum for negotiating new rules. I mean, how do we get the negotiating aspects of the WTO going again? Uh, and there is a lot of work there to move to plurilaterals. You see that clearly in the digital e-commerce space. There is a whole lot of effort. The United States has been doing a good job leading the charge for a more transparent WTO and to make the notification requirements 
um, more real at the WTO. So again, I think across that reform agenda, um, there is a lot there. The fourth one is the one that I think deserves even more, if you will, decoding. Uh, because the fourth statement that was in the, this paragraph eight is an agreement that action is necessary, and again, I'm gonna quote, regarding the functioning of the dispute settlement system consistent with the rules as negotiated by WTO members. Now that is code. That is code for the fact that what the United States has been saying for the last two years about the WTO dispute settlement system needs to be understood in this context. For two years now, the United States has blocked any discussion, effort, anything to appoint new members to the WTO's appellate body. The appellate body is supposed to have seven members from appointed from around the world for a four-year term and they can be reappointed for another four-year term. Right now, it has three and three is the bare minimum number of appellate body members that you need to hear a case. The problem is that on December 11th of this year, two of those appellate body members' terms will expire, which means that unless something happens on December 11th of this year, the WTO appellate body will die, and with it, the WTO's binding dispute settlement system will die. So this is a matter of extreme crisis and emergency, and that is not what you hear in the language coming out of this communique. Part of the reason why I say this needs to be decoded is that there have been a lot of proposals put forward in Geneva to try to address the United States' concerns. Because the United States has said a number of things that are, and I can go into them in more detail than I'm sure anyone in this room wants to hear, but exactly what the United States has said is wrong with the WTO system. Um, everybody has put forward proposals. Uh, Brazil has put forward a proposal which, in my view, meets to the letter what the United States says it wants in exactly the way the United States wants it, and still the United States has not engaged. Japan and Australia put forward a proposal, and there was a discussion in Geneva where both Japan and Australia were criticized by the European Union and others. Why are you giving everything to the United States and getting nothing in return when we don't know whether the United States is going to actually agree on any of these proposals? Hence, I come back to decoding this word consistent with the rules as negotiated by the WTO members. Because what the United States is saying in Geneva is the reason we're not engaging in any discussion and we're not considering any of these proposals is we don't want anything. We don't want any change. We just want everything to go back to the way it was in 1995 as it was negotiated. The problem with that is there is no procedural way to do that. So what effectively the United States is saying is we cannot be satisfied because there is no way to turn back the clock and undo every decision that's ever been made and start from scratch as though there had been no decisions ever rendered by the WTO. Take away everybody's winnings and losings and go back to square one. It cannot be done and the United States knows it cannot be done. So that is code for we will not be satisfied. Um, and that is, again, an extreme problem in terms of the juxtaposition which, what, with what is said with the reality on the ground. Um, because the reality on the ground is um, the binding dispute settlement system of the WTO is going to die on December 11th. Um, and to me, the urgent work of the G20 ought to be to figure out you know, what's plan B. Uh, when you don't have a binding dispute settlement system, where should we be going? But I, I think I'll, I'll stop there and hold those comments for your, for your sense of um, where do we go? I mean, what's next um, in terms of where we're ending up on the trade agenda? Thank you for the comments. The, um, 
I mean, it, it actually is also a good segue then into Naomi and why we asked Naomi to come and share her expertise with us because you, you talk about going back to a world as it was in 1995, but as we know, the world has changed dramatically. The need to have multilateral coordination on specific issues is certainly there and pressing, and one of those areas clearly is on digital economy, and that's where I'll turn it over to Naomi and kind of your commentary on what was achieved in Osaka and the fact that Japan made it such a priority in its uh, G20 year. Sure, right. Thank you. So as my colleagues have revealed to you all, if you didn't already know, the G20 covers a lot of things, and one of those things is uh, fortunately, digital trade and the digital economy. Um, this, is, this term is kind of thrown around as the new thing or we're becoming a digital economy. We're there. The digital economy is the global economy. So it's great that the Japanese took their position uh, uh, as having a leadership role in the G20 to really make that clear and to bring some focus to the discussion in particular of uh, data-free flows with trust. Now, uh, this recognizes a couple of things. As I said, uh, it recognizes that the digital economy is simply the economy right now and the importance of data. And it also recognizes that we have a number of problematic areas with respect to what countries are trying to do legislatively and regulatorily uh, with respect to data. Um, countries are seeing data as, I, I don't like this expression, so please don't repeat it, but the new oil and uh, you know, emerging technologies and AI and data is going to facilitate all of these things. So we need to make sure that we safeguard our data. And there are very legitimate concerns with respect to that, but there are also very worrisome concerns with some of the tactics that we're seeing countries employ. Uh, so legitimate concerns, privacy, cybersecurity, uh, data, data protocols, and uh, data security are all very legitimate concerns. Uh, however, the less legitimate concerns or the more worrisome tactics to address those concerns really center around uh, data localization. So a lot of countries are basically saying, hey, data is really important and we want to keep our data in country and as close to us as possible. But of course, for those of us who pretty much live in the cloud, we recognize that that's not really how the internet works. And furthermore, from a cybersecurity perspective, it's actually not secure to keep your data all in one place as close to you as possible. It basically just makes it easier for a hacker to get all of your data at one time in one place. It's like one-stop shopping. So uh, with respect to Japan's proposal of uh, data-free flows with trust, when this was initially rolled out, uh, a number of my US government colleagues um, and, and colleagues from other countries and other sectors were kind of scratching their heads and going, what does this mean? And I think in retrospect, Japan actually did this very appropriately. They could not possibly define what data free flows with trust really means. 
because frankly, that's incumbent upon industry, and in particular, my sector, the tech sector, to figure out what that means, um, and to work with some of the frameworks that are already in existence. Um, APEC uh, cross-border uh, privacy rules are one of them, probably the most prominent, and obviously folks are very familiar with Europe's GDPR, uh, but if data transfer is indeed occurring every day um, and is a necessary component of any multinational business, then we need frameworks that are interoperable and we need rules of the road that are not specific or country unique uh, because that's simply not tenable in this global economy. So I'll talk a little bit more uh, as we get to next steps about what this means and what we do going forward. Um, but I, I want to say specifically that we were very pleased to see that uh, data free flows with trust was included in the communique as, as a baseline, as a great jumping off point to continue to flesh it out and to uh, make it actionable. Great. Um, I, I want to say I know I'm, I'm promising you to save time for questions. I wanted to get a bit more of the kind of forward-looking perspective. And I also have kind of some themes that emerged in all of your, your comments. The first one is that Japan had a really tough job <laughs> in, uh, in bringing together this group of countries and dealing with this set of issues. And, and both speakers before kind of alluded to um, the proliferation in the G20 agenda, um, and I think that's an effort that every presidency faces to try and address concerns, but also come out with something at the end that is both consensus and constructive. But um, I mean, it's clear from this discussion how tricky of a year it was um, to, to achieve that goal. The second thing that comes across to me, and Naomi, you didn't say it explicitly, but I think for folks following data issues, they know that kind of US-China tensions are, um, are certainly right there under the surface. And I think the rest of you actually did mention explicitly kind of the US-China dynamic. And it's, it's a question I have, and maybe as I turn to you for the forward-looking piece, um, you could maybe answer or include in your answer to what extent multilateral uh, coordination in the G20 specifically is the right place to deal with US-China tensions. Um, so I'll leave it there and ask for kind of what would progress in each of your areas of expertise look like in the next year with Saudi Arabia leading the G20. Um, and if I could ask all of you to keep your answers to a couple of minutes, that'll leave us with about 20 minutes to take questions from the audience. So. Mark, let me start with you. Okay, uh, some comments on the immediate forward agenda and then some broader comments. Uh, yeah. So I, I wish the Saudis, the Italians, good luck. Uh, I think to offer solid leadership, they're gonna need to assemble strong teams and pursue disciplined and focused agendas. They're gonna need to avoid being too distracted by domestic politics. But of course, if major G20 players are focused on their own agendas or don't want to play along, the prospects for major advances are not favorable. And next year is a presidential election year in the United States. We shouldn't forget. So on economic policy, I, I do believe in principle that there's a set of policies that each G20 country could pursue to put its own house in order that would strengthen the global economy. And economists would say that a higher level of welfare could result 
if nations did so together, taking into account the spillovers from one another. But as I said earlier, uh, do I expect the US to adopt a wise fiscal course or Germany to use its fiscal space? No. Do I expect an end to trade intentions? No. Do I expect China to scale back its industrial policies and the role of the state to a significant extent? No. Do I expect global imbalances, uh, which are persistent and concentrated in the industrial country, the advanced economies, to materially abate? No. On the IMF, I believe the world will be in cruise control. Hopefully, the fund will uh, get the nod to double the NAB with US participation and maintain its resource envelope. Uh, hopefully, there'll be an agreement on a quote increase, but that's not going to happen for several years. Um, and of course, while the administration uh, raises concerns about multilateral institutions, uh, you saw that uh, they, without any hesitation, quickly turned to the IMF to lead the crisis effort on Argentina. Uh, I expect uh, gradual progress on debt, mainly because I think China is increasingly realizes, realizing it's in China's self-interest to advance debt sustainability and transparency to curb abuses that have arisen. Uh, I think the FSB agenda will advance, but I worry as crisis memories are fade that um, issues of regulatory capture and principal agent problems are growing, um, and I think more work is needed to assess the risk from non-banks as well as develop macroprudential tools. So on a few philosophical notes. Um, so Samuel Johnson said, when a man knows he is to be hanged, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. And, th and that's what happened during the global financial crisis. Major countries facing cataclysm came together and coordinated monetary and fiscal policies to stave off depression. But in more normal non-crisis periods, nation states face different cyclical positions, they have different policy objectives, and they have different approaches to macroeconomic issues. And for example, some may want to raise interest rates, others may want to cut. Some may wish or have reason to pursue fiscal consolidation, while others don't or just won't. Now, does the fact that nations won't coordinate their policies for the greater global good mean the G20 is useless and failing, as some analysts suggest? So I'm going to echo some of the themes that Matt Goodman outlined earlier. I think there's utility in G20 finance ministers and leaders meetings, even in an environment in which not much progress on global issues is being made. There's utility in leading officials knowing each other. The discussions and bilaterals should help sensitize them to the kinds of challenges and issues the others face. They know who to call when there's a crisis. Uh, the, the meetings provide an umbrella for important work going on beneath the surface. We mentioned uh, earlier the G20 work on taxation. I've highlighted the financial stability's work, uh, stability board's work So, as a few examples. And I think it's important to just keep the machinery greased for when it's truly needed. So if I wrap up, we live in a world of nation states. Countries pursue their self-interests. Of course, there's no independence in an interdependent world, as hard as some policymakers may try to act and think otherwise. I worry, given the self-interested orientation of nation states, though, that the world is failing to cope with global challenges, such as the environment and climate, as we mentioned. So accepting the nation state as reality, it would be good if our leaders were more globally minded. Alas, we're now living in a world of rising nationalism and populism. 
So I think it's uh, hard to pin failure on the G20. So we're, we're setting our expectations low, but we're recognizing that it's a necessary mechanism to keep things moving forward. Scott, do you agree? <laughs> I'm going to be more modest in my uh, okay. next. Uh, so let me stick with the debt issue in particular. Um, and I think in terms of next steps, you know, one, recognizing that um, what we have is, uh, you know, I think a constructive agenda in the G20 is in no small part because the U.S. is highly motivated on this issue vis-a-vis -vis China. I think in turn, I agree with Mark, China itself is motivated in its own way to find a path forward that includes to some degree more multilateral coordination, but I, I think we can easily overstate that. Um, I think perhaps the opportunity, particularly with Saudi Arabia's having the presidency, is um, uh, it is a it, it would be arguably a sympathetic ally to the Chinese. Namely, Saudi Arabia is not a member of the Paris Club either. So you have a group of countries that have become increasingly important as creditors in the world, official creditors to other governments, um, and and you know in contrast, countries have become. Have, be, have declined in importance. So there, there's this growing imbalance and you know, a set of structures that were built by those who are now declining in importance. Uh, and you know, so the, the rising countries are outside of those structures. So that's sort of the task ahead. I think perhaps um, you know, the good news is that more or less all these countries are within the G20. Um, I think it probably does take um, a little bit more uh, emphasis or more ambition on the side of the countries who are outside of the system as we know it, who don't have a hand in picking the head of the IMF or the president of the World Bank, um, which play a critical role in these questions of debt and coordination, uh, and again, countries that are not uh, a member of this club that meets in Paris all the time. Um, so I think there is some kind of path forward um, but frankly, as much as China has a long way to go, I think it probably it's going to be at least as painful for the countries who probably have to give up something on the governance of these arrangements if we're going to make progress. Okay. Jennifer, let me unconstrain you from having to fit what you're going to say within a G20 context. Um, but as far as the question well, of what well, looking forward. I, I mean, I'll just start with, I do think the G20 played a very important role and that this communique in and of itself played a very important role in reaffirming uh, support for the WTO and, and for reformation of the WTO, which I think is extremely important, particularly for those that are worried uh, when they read the occasional tweet or other statement from President Trump that if the WTO doesn't do X, the U.S. will pull out of it. So I think just merely getting all members of the G20 to reaffirm support for the WTO and to commit to an effort to try to reform it in and of itself was an important, was really an important thing. And at the same time, I think as your question suggests, the good news for the G20 at some level is the WTO is certainly a highly capable, very engaged institution where there really is now a huge effort ongoing there outside of the WTO, but including all of the members of the G20 to try to really get to terms with could we reform the WTO to make it a more highly engaged functioning institution that is better prepared to take on the sort of 21st century trade issues um, that are, that are going to go well beyond uh, the current disciplines on, on services and goods and, and intellectual property, I mean, where, whether we can take on 
the newer issues in trade within the context of the WTO, I think um, that those issues have been very well teed up um, by the G20, by the communique to say this is important and it needs to happen. The place where I'm the most concerned and pessimistic is over the dispute settlement system. Okay. And that's where uh, it's not clear how you read um, what came out of the G20. Because there's clearly, if you will, two schools of thought, I think. I, I, my, my reading um, of where the United States is, um, is that we would all be better off uh, without a binding dispute settlement system, that the WTO can continue to exist and thrive in the absence of uh, a binding dispute settlement mechanism. I personally don't share that view. And my sense is 19 of the 20 members of the G20 do not share that view. And so the question is whether with respect to just that issue of, you know, do you need a forum in which disputes over trade issues can be resolved in a way with, with, with sort of binding rules where countries end up having to come into compliance uh, with whatever the obligations are. Again, that to me is one of those issues that was sort of, uh, sort of papered over, if you will, um, in, in the communique and in the way it came out. And that to me is the one that should be rising up to the level of crisis or near crisis in terms of if, if you believe it is essential to have a dis binding dispute settlement system, we're, we're at the crisis point and we need to come to some resolution of how to fix it right now. Okay. And Naomi, to you, kind of how do you see the path forward on the issues around digital and data governance? Sure. So uh, in the near term, a lot of uh, these issues have strong links to the WTO e-commerce negotiations, uh, which we put a lot of stock into uh, and do think that they are, are very important and necessary in order to address uh, the, the economy as it is today um, and how existing trade rules apply to the digital economy. Uh, on data free flows with trust, Specifically, I think a lot of that work will fall to industry. Uh, so in advance of the G20, um, my association, ITI, and several other associations, um, including our Japanese partner association, JADA, teamed together to hold a roundtable to unpack uh, what this could potentially mean. And that's just an initial conversation. Uh, there, there's much more work that needs to be done, but for industry, what we need to do is take a look at what the legitimate government concerns are with respect to cybersecurity, privacy, law enforcement access to data, uh, and propose solutions and not just fall into this um, pattern that we've developed, which is to say, no, don't do that, or you can't do that, that's bad, that will cut us off at the kneecaps uh, in terms of our economic bandwidth. Uh, so. Developing a proposal and getting buy-in uh, among industry will be really important to moving forward. On your question on US-China relations and whether that can be addressed through the G20, frankly, I think it's in the interest of any international fora to address the issues between uh, you know, the two most important economies and probably the most critical uh, economic relationship in the world. Uh, obviously, the United States has not favored that approach, um, but it's very ironic that uh, 
a number of countries share our concerns with China, especially in the digital space. Um, these are historic problems that have been documented over time. There are real issues that need to be addressed with respect to China's cybersecurity and trade practices. Uh, and that will really only change uh, over time if it's a concerted, long-term, multilateral effort. And it doesn't have to be run through any particular fora, but not taking advantage of our shared interests in correcting China's behavior is a huge missed opportunity. All right, with that, um, I'm gonna propose that we take questions in batches of three. Um, so if you have a question, there are hands up already, a mic will come to you. Let's take three at a time, turn to our panelists, and then we'll go back for a second round. Um, so let's start, there's a gentleman right there in a green shirt, start there. Uh, thank you, I'm Leon Weinchild, a retired member of, of, of the Foreign Service. I'd like to ask about infrastructure. If there's any language in the final document that addresses some of the uh, investment options offered in the Belt and Road Initiative about infrastructure, anything that addresses concern about the mechanisms being used in the Belt and, and, and Road Investment Infrastructure, and if there's not any language, is that because the Chinese were successful at leaving it out. Okay, another question um, here in the second row, Ryan, if you see someone right here. It's a gentleman, uh, actually, there's a gentleman and a woman. Why don't we take these two together? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this is a, a question for Professor Hillman. So you mentioned the World Trade Organization's in kind of a dire situation uh, regarding the appellate body there. Um, regarding the December 11th, right? And you also mentioned how Brazil made a proposal um, which is pretty much to the T of what the United States wanted, and yet we've kind of lacked initiative on that. Is there a reason for that? Is it in the United States' interest why we're doing this? What's the grand strategy with that? Uh, hi, I'm a reporter from Shenzhen Media Group. Uh, I have two questions for Mr. Mark. Um, is there any uh, positive signal you observed in the G20 meeting section that you participate in? And um, uh, does the US-China trade uh, tension play any um, uh, role in the uh, uh, FED's action, potential action to cut rates, and as well as the sort of negative the world economy outlook? Thank you. Um, why don't we start, I think there was the first question was on infrastructure and BRI. You know, Scott, do you want to take that? Yeah, I'm going to say this with false confidence, but some confidence that there is not an explicit reference to Belt and Road in all the documents. Yeah, thank you, Matt. <laughs> um, but clearly it's implicit um, in a lot of the issues that, that I, I was talking about. Um, I think what's interesting, you know, the initiative itself is at an interesting moment in the sense that I think virtually all of the G20 countries, save one, on their own are, have made very supportive comments uh, or have aligned themselves formally through MOUs with Belt and Road. Um, the U.S. has been a very forceful critic um, and, and has made a priority of, of criticism. So in, it's, you know, in, in some world it's plausible that actually you could see Belt and Road affirmed in a forum like the G20 as as a useful way to pursue infrastructure investment with, you know, 
carries some risk. At the same time, it's also plausible to imagine that the U.S. would make a priority of inserting critical language that comes close to being explicit about Belarus. And I think that's a little bit of what we got here is that so much of what I, again, I view as a constructive agenda really is motivated by a critique of China's lending practices. My, my point is that there's a broader context for that as well. Yes, we need to capture China's behavior, but it has to happen in a multilateral context in which, number one, we, we don't really have it anymore. And frankly, it should capture the behavior of a lot of countries that, that are not um, following any particular disciplines. Question on Brazil's proposal. Sure. Um, so why is the United States not engaging? I mean, part of this stems from the sort of why is the United States blocking the members? What, what is the real U.S. beef? Um, and two ways, I think, to think about it. One is kind of the, this narrative that if you listen to what USTR, this is in essence what they're saying, which is the United States agreed to join the WTO and to be subject to the jurisdiction of its binding dispute settlement mechanism, which I'll stop right there and say is unusual. I mean, if you think about it, the United States is not submitted to the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. The United States is not submitted to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. The United States is not submitted to the jurisdiction of the Inter-American Court on Human Rights or any other international court. All right, so this was unusual for the United States in 1995 to agree to join um, this WTO that also had this binding dispute settlement mechanism in it. The narrative is this, that the United States agreed to do that on the assumption, the promise, if you will, the bargain, that the dispute settlement system could not and would not add to any obligations on the United States or take away any rights that it had in 1995. And the argument that the U.S. is making is the appellate body did just that. I mean, across a whole series of decisions. Uh, there used to be this practice in the anti-dumping world known as zeroing, and the United States said, okay, we had the right to zero in 1995, and then along comes this series of decisions, and now we no longer have that right. We used to have the right to impose safeguards without showing that unforeseen developments cause the increase in imports, and now we have to do this. On, 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 a whole series of decisions in which, in the U.S.'s view, um, the appellate body has either added an obligation on the United States that it didn't have or taken away a right that it used to have. Now, Every time the United States says that, there will be other parties that will say, no, that's not what the appellate body did. The appellate body simply interpreted the text as it existed. It wasn't actually doing anything other than what every judge does, which is to interpret the text. But that's the narrative. And as a result of the narrative, the U.S. view is therefore all bets are off. In other words, you appellate body broke the bargain, and therefore it's okay for us to now engage in all of this unilateral behavior because the appellate body broke the bargain. That's part of it. The second part of it really does get to this, do you think we're better off with a power-based system than we are with a rules-based system? Um, and inherently, in my view, I think what at least uh, USTR Robert Lighthizer would prefer is to go back to the old GATT system. So in the old GATT system, which existed between 1947 and 1995, two major distinctions. One is if the subject matter of a panel that was about to be invoked was too sensitive, you simply said, stop, I don't, I block even the creation of a panel to hear the dispute in the first place. And you hear that again coming back in what the United States is saying. There's been a lot of challenges to the U.S. tariffs on steel and aluminum. 
And what the U.S. is saying in Geneva is don't even start a panel because we think this is a matter of national security. National security is too sensitive. It's too important. There should never be a panel that ever sits and questions the U.S.'s national security. Don't start a panel in the first place. The second big thing that was done in the old GATT days is if you lost a case and didn't like the outcome of it, you block the adoption of that panel report so that it never became binding. That's exactly what the United States is going to get when there's no appellate body. If you want to block the adoption of a panel report, just file the notice of an appeal, and because there's nobody there to hear the appeal, you've effectively blocked the adoption of that panel report. So I think part of what the U.S. wants to do is go back to those days in which you could block you know, discussion and or block outcomes um, whenever you see fit. And the problem is all of the smaller countries at the WTO, the whole point of a binding dispute settlement mechanism was it was their only chance to have rules actually be invoked against the big countries like the United States. So it's creating all kinds of problems, but I think that's what really motivates the U.S.'s unwillingness to engage with the Brazil proposal or the Japan proposal or the EU proposal or anybody else's proposals to reform the, the dispute settlement system. And then the question to Mark Sobel, could you repeat it actually just so we can? Uh, I'm a reporter from Shenzhen Media Group. So my question is, uh, did you uh, observe any signal, uh, positive signal for the US-China bilateral tension in the G20 section that you uh, participate in? And um, does the U.S.-China te uh, trade tension play any role in the fattest potential action to cover it, as well as the sort of negative uh, world economy outlook? Thank you. Okay, uh, but just to be clear, I wasn't uh, uh, there. Um, look, obviously that the president and President Xi agreed to a truce was positive, right? The tariffs weren't ratcheted up. It, it, it could have been worse. Um, but have they made progress uh, in resolving the trade issues? So they've, sent, they've said that their team should get back together again. It, apparently there are phone calls going on, but the teams haven't gotten back together again. Uh, I think that the gap between them is uh, quite large. They were close, and then the gap became bigger. Um, and uh, for me, it's difficult to see how they're going to resolve their tensions. I wish them the best of doing in so doing. And of course, next year is a presidential election year, so I think that uh, politics will uh, complicate getting to any solution. Um, is this negative for the world economy, for the U.S. economy? I think the IMF has done some estimates that basically say that the uh, that if you just take all the existing tariffs uh, and whatnot, that it's going to reduce global uh, growth next year by half a percent of GDP, and that's without a further increase in uh, uncertainty that would impact investment and confidence, or without a further increase uh, in tariffs that one can't necessarily rule out or tech tensions on the technology front and whatnot. So I, I do think that the U.S.-China trade tensions are uh, adversely impacting uh, the global economy, and I think we can see it. 
So we're just about at time. Let me take two more questions, and then folks can obviously approach um, afterward. We've got one here in the front row, and then one here in the front row. Uh, Steve Winters, uh, independent consultant. I think this is for Jennifer. Uh, I, I understand the uh, these many uh, criticisms of uh, of China's uh, use of debts uh, to uh, you know get a get a handle over other countries. But if I take just for example Greece or Italy, there seems to be a strong feeling in the populations of both of those countries that the IMF also came in with a very you know heavy hand you know imposed austerity conditionalities X Y and Z all because of various economic situations. And now, of course, those two countries are the ones that are, are in, in effect, signing up for the Belt and Road in Europe with China. So, so what would you say to them to say, if, if, if they argue, well, look, I mean, we've been getting the heavy hand from the IMF, you know, so, I mean, we'll try to deal with the Chinese, but, but don't, don't just say it's a Chinese problem. Question here in the front row. Yeah, hi, Andrea Shalal with Reuters. Um, I wanted to ask you two questions. One is, there's been Who? a person, per, Andrea Shalal with Reuters. Who would you want to direct uh, your questions to? Sir, oh, to, well, I guess you can just pick and choose. So the, uh, the, uh, there's a personality change going on now uh, at the EU level, right? We've got a new commissioner. It was Juncker who came to the United States and was able to broker a, a truce with, uh, with President Trump. Um, how do you handicap the sort of, you know, chances going forward on both a U.S., a EU, and a U.S.-Japan trade deal going forward? And what would the, um, in, you know, what would the effect be if either one of those agreements come first to, uh, on, on the negotiations with China? I mean, is there some advantage to the U.S. to, uh, you know, get those deals done or at least some kind of some uh, get some movement forward, and then I just wanted to ask you, uh, Professor Hellman, on the on the WTO, if this all happens and the appellate body basically ceases to ex exist, what what will the implications be? I mean, what what actually happens? You know, does you know what happens to the existing um, disputes that are are before the body right now? Uh, and yeah, I, you know. Well, I'm, I'm happy to answer the trade questions. I'm not sure whether I'm the best person on the that. IMF, so I, I think I might defer that to, to Mark. So, so on, on the trade front, um, you asked about the U.S.-EU agreement or U.S.-Japan agreement. I mean, uh, right now, I would say uh, we're not in a, in a very close proximity to reaching any kind of these agreements because we're, you have to start, anytime you start a trade negotiation, obviously the first thing you have to think about is what's the scope of the negotiation? How big or small is this particular agreement going to be? And on both our, our potential agreement with the EU and with Japan, we're not on the same page. Um, right from the very get-go, the, the Yonk, Yonker uh, Trump agreement produced a document where it was fairly clearly stated in the document that the agreement would not cover agriculture. Um, and so the European Union is saying this agreement is not going to cover agriculture. And of course, the US Congress and others are saying, uh, we don't want to do a deal with Europe unless agriculture is covered. That's an absolute prerequisite. So right from the very beginning, there isn't yet even agreement on the scope of an agreement between the US and the EU. Um, and obviously, the president right from the beginning said that uh, what had been on the table, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which would have been a very big, broad, comprehensive agreement 
was, again, in the same category as TPP, terrible, worst, awful, whatever adjective you want. So the notion was we're, whatever we're doing with respect to the US and the EU, it's not TTIP. Um, it's going to be something quite different and, again, very difficult to figure out. So what's formally on the table is a goods-only agreement uh, between the United States and Japan and the EU that does not cover agriculture, does not cover services, does not cover you know, IP, does not cover digital, does not cover you know, all these other things. And again, query whether that's worth an agreement that's really worth doing. It has the important effect of resolving trade in autos. I mean, if it could, well, again, unclear whether trade in autos is going to be included. So again, it's just not clear where that is. And I would say to some degree, similarly for, for Japan, uh, for Japan, the pressure is going to come on agriculture. And the issue is whether or not Japan is going to be willing to make the same kind of commitments that it made in the TPP, which now exist in the CPTPP, which again, Japan really was the leader and the driver in keeping TPP alive and, and getting it to be an agreement without the United States. Um, the question is whether Japan would make those kind of commitments when the commitments it will receive from the United States are far less than what it would have gotten had we just stayed in the TPP. So I, I'm just worried that we're at a real difference in balance and imbalance in terms of what's, what's the starting point uh, of the goal of these negotiations. So I'm not particularly optimistic that you're going to see an agreement on, on either of those fronts anytime soon. In terms of the dispute settlement system on what happens um, after December 11th, uh, first of all, the panels of the WTO are not affected. So all WTO disputes start, if you will, at the trial court or at the, at the panel level. Um, we have, again, an excellent panel process. It's going to keep right on going. Uh, so again, I don't think you see any, any change in the panel process. Um, the question is going to come, what happens to a panel report after December 11th? So again, normally the process for panel reports, you've got option A is to simply have it be adopted. Say, panel, you did a good job, I may have won, I may have lost, but I don't really have any qualms with it. It gets adopted formally by the dispute settlement body of the WTO, and then you have to comply with the decision. And you have the dispute settlement body of the WTO riding herd over whether you're coming into compliance. So you have all 164 countries watching how is the compliance going. That is the hoped for outcome is that countries will not push, if you will, the nuclear button by filing a notice of appeal, that they will simply live with the panel report and accept that there isn't an appeals process anymore. But option B, after December 11th, is the notion that you would file a notice of appeal, and that kills, effectively, uh, the outcome of the panel report. Option C is one that a lot of people are thinking about, which is to use a provision that exists in the rules today, Article 25 of the Dispute Settlement Understanding, provides for an arbitration process. And so the query is whether you could go forward with each, each individual dispute, the parties to the dispute agreeing that they will go to arbitration instead of to the appellate body, which doesn't exist anymore. In lieu of that, we'll go to an arbitration appeal um, and the European Union has put forward a proposal where the arbitrations would all be done by former members of the appellate body and the staff of the arbitration would be, oh, guess what, the appellate body secretariat, so that you would effectively keep the appellate body on life support, if you will, um, doing these appeals but under the auspices of the arbitration rules. T two downsides really quickly to that is, one, it's case by case and the parties have to agree to it. Uh, so you don't know whether the United States would ever agree to enter into this kind of it. And secondly, the, the findings of an arbitration panel never come before this DSB. So you never have that same ability to have the sort of 
164 countries kind of riding herd over compliance if all it is is an arbitration report. So there's some downsides to it, but I think that's the most realistic sort of option C uh, if uh, for what's likely to happen after December 11th. Naomi, did you want to add anything? Yeah, just briefly on the China negotiations question. Um, so as Jennifer mentioned, neither of those agreements include uh, services and specifically data. The, the basis for the 301 investigation against China is tech uh, and concerns with respect to China's unfair tech practices. So no, I don't think there's any hope that even if those were to come to fruition, they would help or hurt the US-China bilateral negotiations. Okay, and then Mark, I think you can answer okay. the So on uh, Greece, Italy, and the IMF, I have a very different perception than you do. Um, first of all, Italy doesn't have a program with the IMF now. Italy is a country that has high debt to GDP ratio, 130%. It's an economy that's not growing. Um, Europe has said for the sanctity of European processes and surveillance uh, uh, strictures and the euro that Italy needs to bring its debt down and has put pressure on the Italians to reduce their debt at a time when some Italians are speaking about raising uh, that raising fiscal spending. So that's the Europeans that are doing it. It's not the IMF. There's no IMF program in Italy. In Greece, um, so, you know, Greece in the years was, it was very highly over indebted. Um, and again, the Europeans said, well, we want Greece to run three and a half percent primary surpluses before interest spending. And it was actually the fund that said, that's too much, and there needs to be more debt relief. And the Europeans in the fund couldn't come to agreement. The IMF stayed out in 2015 and 2016 because they thought the Europeans were demanding excessive austerity and not providing enough debt relief. So, um, so I think that uh, you've, uh, Again, I don't, I don't really agree with your assessment of the role of the fund in these cases. But that having been said, I think it's understandable that Greece and Italy will be looking to find new sources of uh, financing and new investment. Uh, the Chinese in past years have been major providers of foreign direct investment, though that is abating. Um, so I find it unsurprising that they're looking for sources of funds that will provide them with greater growth going forward. Okay, with that, we've, we've kept you here a bit late. Maybe you're just enjoying the air conditioning here instead of going outside. But um, <laughs> let, me, um, let me just wrap up by saying, I mean, it's hard to uh, draw out kind of a single theme from the event, given how uh, broad the G20 agenda is. But I did hear a strong vote in favor of continued engagement via the G20 and the reality that these problems actually require multilateral solutions. So let me... Let me take that as a, as a takeaway and also mention that obviously the G7, G20, WTO agenda is, um, is certainly ongoing. We here at CSIS and all the institutions represented here are doing a lot of work on this set of issues. So, um, so join me please in thanking um, our panelists. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more and remember you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.